This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. I'm your host, Casey Finey, and this is Creative Conversation, a Fast Company podcast. Why, hello, everyone. Hi, Mo. Hi, Casey. <laughs> so, very excited. Uh, my name is Casey Finey. I'm an entertainment reporter and editor with Fast Company Magazine, and this is a live taping of uh, my podcast that I have with the magazine, a Creative Conversation. And I couldn't imagine having a better guest for a podcast like this than Mo Rocca, because you are quite a creative person. So, I feel like, you know, before your current career as a correspondent with CBS Sunday Morning and the host of your podcast and new book, Mobituaries, you know, you, I think most people know you either from The Daily Show or as a talking head on I Love the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Every decade. Every decade. <laughs> and I mean, before that, if you dig even further into your resume, I mean, you were a writer on shows like Wishbone and Pepper Ann, like a lot of a kids, kids programming. And dig even further beyond that. I mean, you were, you started, you had a career doing Broadway abroad, or like doing Broadway shows abroad. That's putting it generously. <laughs> I was in the Southeast Asia tour of the musical Grease. <laughs> I was, I was trying to pump you up there. I was I trying know, to give you, you were, something. You were way too generous. <laughs> so, and that's the thing, I mean, you, and if you dig even further back, you graduated from Harvard with a degree in literature. So wh what would you say was your original trajectory for your career? Because, I mean, it's just from starting with a degree at Harvard, a literature degree at Harvard, to now, it's kind of, there's a lot that happened in between. So what was what would you say was your original trajectory? Well, I, I thought I wanted to be an actor, because at least I thought there's a path. You go to New York and you audition. You know, there were, pre-internet, there was a trade magazine, I'm sure it exists, still online, called Backstage, and every Thursday, you get it and circle where the auditions were. And I had a very type A overbearing friend, we all need at least one, who said, you're making the uncreative choice. You know deep down that you need to write your own way. You need to figure out your own way. And it's sort of news you don't want to hear because you're thinking, oh, that's going to be so much harder. But I got a lucky break when a friend of mine, a woman named Stephanie Simpson, came up with this idea for this show, Wishbone, a PBS kids show about a Jack Russell Terrier who in his dream life becomes the heroes of classic novels in order to familiarize kids between the ages of six and 11 with the themes of those books so that when they encounter them later on, they find them less daunting. Anyway, and it was actually a really, an, an extraordinary experience. It was storytelling boot camp for me because even though I'd gotten this fancy education, I really didn't know how to tell a story. Um, and with Wishbone, every episode of this PBS series um, was taking one of the great works of literature, mostly Western canon, not entirely, um, and reducing it. And I don't mean dumbing it down. I mean reducing it, refining it, to a 30-minute episode for kids. And I didn't realize it at the time, but that was um, a really fundamental, important experience because kids, especially at that age, they know bad writing in that they know when you're marking time, when you're just filling in, when characters are just talking, but the plot isn't moving forward. They kind of demand that the plot be lean and dynamic and keep moving forward. Um, and we would focus group, we did this in Dallas 
Texas and the suburbs of Dallas, which is also good, I think, for me to be out of New York or Los Angeles for what was a great learning experience. Um, and we would focus group it in front of kids. And I think that's how I, I keep going back to that toolbox. And I've used that um, in all the shows I've been in, whether I was doing a three-minute satirical piece for The Daily Show or now a 10-minute piece, if I'm lucky, <laughs> for the CBS Sunday Morning or with a podcast telling someone's life story in about 45 or 50 minutes, um, keeping it moving, making it dynamic. Um, yeah. I mean, actually, I was going to ask you, I mean, like, what is at the root of good storytelling? So it is making it lean. It's making it concise. So, I mean, is what else is there? I like when – it's interesting. I know people love Netflix for a lot of different reasons and say, oh, it's so great because the story can be as long as I need it to be. I kind of like the discipline of good old-fashioned kind of um, advertising pods. You know, when you say, oh, it's got to be in three or four acts and it's got to be this length. I did a cooking show that was very close to my heart um, called My Grandmother's Ravioli, where I went around the country learning how to cook from grandmothers and grandfathers in their kitchens. Um, and I did it, I designed it this way because I knew that by having somebody do an activity like cooking, they would be less self-conscious and they would open up more and tell me their life story and reveal their values, um, which is what I was really seeking to understand. My father had just died and I thought, I had that feeling of, oh wow, of, of mortality. I'm sort of next in line. So I wanna spend time with people who are, are at a stage in their lives when they kind of know what matters. Um, but in any case, this was a, a tier of cable television where there were a lot of ads, so it had to be 19 minutes. And I liked that process of taking a story and compressing it. And, you know, I, the stories were better at that length than they would have been at 42 minutes or 48 minutes. It's, when you have to make hard choices, I think it makes for better storytelling. Absolutely. And you know, in all your capacities, I mean, you're working, I would imagine you're working different creative muscles. And so in seeing where your career is now, kind of looking back, what would you say has been your most atrophied muscle? What was the hardest creative muscle for you to work? Um, the, the, the one that was the most important to work? The hardest to work. The hardest to work, I think, is um, liking what you like, <laughs> right? I mean, like saying, this is what I like. And, you know, um, I do a show also on Saturday mornings called Innovation Nation on CBS about the history of innovation and current innovation. And there was a designer named Alexander Gerard, and he did the designs for Braniff Airways, which were very distinctive, I think, in the 1970s. But he was doing something, mixing patterns in a way that was considered totally out of fashion at the time. But that's what he liked doing, and he was really good at doing that. And I find that it's so important because you know, I want more than anything I, I've, I've realized to um, pursue what I'm interested in in a way that I believe will make other people interested in it. I used to, in, years ago when I was on The Daily Show and was booked on a lot of ca college campuses, I would do a slideshow, a PowerPoint show, of all the different presidential homes and grave sites I'd been to. I'm a big history buff, and I love the presidents that you can't remember were actually president. Because I was interested in who would work at the Benjamin Harrison House in Indianapolis. I mean, if you work at Monticello or Mount Vernon, people are in awe before they walk in. But if you're at the Benjamin Harrison House, most people showing up are there to use the bathroom. And, <laughs> and I met a woman there 
who had been volunteering for 22 years. Her name was Wanda Wheeler. She dressed in a Victorian gown to give tours. And I happened to show up on a day when there was a group of second graders. So I tagged along with that group. And by the end of it, we went right on in, I'm sure. Uh, right. I, was, I didn't stick out at all. And by the end, though, we all wanted to sandblast Mount Rushmore and replace it with Benjamin Harrison, even though he had been a crappy president and was known for having a terrible personality and supposedly had a handshake like a quote unquote wilted petunia. I mean, you can imagine that, right? But she was so committed to Benjamin Harrison. Um, and I think, I'm not sure that everything she said was right, but in any case, but I admired that. Um, so um, when I would go around to college campuses, I liked the fact that I would do a slideshow on obscure presidents. And I know that most of the kids, if you told them what I was gonna talk about before they walked in, they wouldn't have walked in. But once I got them in, I, I was happy about that. And I mean, yeah. that's the thing, I think, to that point, because, you know, speaking of presidents, I know your your first book dealt with uh, presidential pets. Mm -hmm, and yeah. it seems like you kind of revel in the obscure. And I, and I love that. And I think more people should do that. So what do you think we can get from learning to look in the corners for those hidden, overlooked things? Well, um, I think that I like to be generous in looking at the past. I like to cut the past some slack. I think that for different sorts of reasons, um, sometimes figures from the past have been dismissed um, in in my book, and this is also in my podcast, although most of the material is different. I looked at Billy Carter, because Billy Carter, for people my age, the younger brother of Jimmy Carter, is remembered as a joke. He's remembered for Billy Beer, and he made a spectacle of himself. There's a long tradition of troublemaking presidential siblings going all the way back to John Quincy Adams' brother Charles, who was called a madman possessed by the devil. But, um, um, but it, and then Roger Clinton, Bill Clinton's half-brother, his Secret Service code name really was Headache. Uh, <laughs> they named him, he was such a pain in the ass. Um, but, Bill, but Billy Carter, I remembered, had vague recollections of him with those big blocky black-framed glasses and hawking his beer on TV. And I wondered who he really was. And I talked to President Jimmy Carter about him and to Billy's widow, Sybil, and, and fabulous family of six kids. And they described, and, I, and CBS News archives helped prove this, a man who was funny, who was smart, uh, and who was very, very hardworking, um, and who was an alcoholic. And in the last very proud chapter of his life, um, went around the country speaking to people who could relate to him, relate better to him than to say Elizabeth Taylor about what it was like to be an alcoholic and to struggle with that. Um, so he of course was a fully formed human being and, uh, and I also was intrigued by the situation. He didn't choose for his brother to be president. And because his brother was president, the company, the family company he was gonna run was put into a blind trust. So he was thrust into a situation where he couldn't resist the temptation of making a fool of himself on TV because it was a way to make money and so. And you know, just looking again, kind of looking at all the parts of your career. I mean, from author, podcast host, uh, TV correspondent, uh, sometimes actor. <laughs> I mean, I think that I mean, I'm really I'm curious to know, like, what what would you say has that taught you? Knowing that you pushing yourself and doing these different taking your, your, your ideas and your thoughts and all these different avenues, what has that taught you about your creative process as a whole, knowing that, you, that knowing that you're pushing yourself in all these new different directions and not just doing one thing? 
Um, well, what has it taught me? I mean, I think it's given me more confidence. It's taught me about connections among all these different, it's all about telling stories. Like for instance, I've been an actor, I've written scripted television, fictional, and I've done nonfiction and journalism. I, as a reporter, I, I think it's, and a lot of reporters don't like to hear this, it's performative, it is storytelling. Otherwise, people won't be engaged. So when you're interviewing somebody, I, when I'm doing an interview, I think that my goal is to be best supporting actor, right? It's not a co-starring situation, but, um, but it is performative, and it's about engaging with an audience, whether it's in the writing, whether it's in the interviewing, in, whether it's in the acting. But I do want to talk about Tina Turner for a moment. Said way, yeah, no, hard left, I, well, go. No, because no. I've been thinking about this because I went to see the Tina Turner musical on Broadway. And these biopic musicals, they're a mixed bag. But there was this moment, and I was, I was full disclosure, I was telling Casey, I didn't tell him what it was, but. I told him to save it because I really yeah. wanted to know what this was. He got very excited about but it. But I became like a Doberman, like when this scene was happening. And, and I, I have it on just I want to read the lines and what happens in this scene, it's basically the life of Tina Turner and the woman, um, Adrian Warren, who plays her is really amazing. But there's a moment in it. Is this a spoiler alert? I mean, it, if we know Tina Turner's life, obviously probably not, but. Is it a spoiler alert? Am I doing something wrong by reading You hyped it lines? up already, just say Let's it. Let's just do it's it. Fine. We have to, look, in this media environment, we can't contain anything. All right, <laughs> so we're all blabber mouths. So <laughs> we're all spoilers. So she goes to Phil Spector, and she, he is, this is a big moment in her career. She's still with Ike, and she's recording River Deep, Mountain High. Great song. And she starts to sing it, and she's kind of doing a lot of melismas, a lot of that American Idol kind of stuff all over. And he, he, and she's saying, you know, when I was a little girl, the way it begins. Um, and I know, sound just like I sound just like Tina Turner. Nailed and then it. Phil Spector stops her, and he stops her a couple of times, and then he finally says, "Tina, you're coming in too fast. It's feeling a bit rushed. I just need you to sing on the beat. It'll go." And then he does a little ba da bum 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 ba, and then he says, "And after you do that." In the silence, the silence is where I want you to plant yourself and sing, like you're singing to the God in yourself. Do you know what that feels like? And then she tears up and she says, yes, as a matter of fact, I do. And he says, good, try it again, no pushing. And she does that and there's just a silence and you feel her plant herself and hear that God inside and then she just nails it. And it's so exhilarating. And, you know, I don't know. I just think in my own creative process, a lot of the time, I am glad that I've done so many things, and sometimes it's by necessity rushed. But, but then there are those moments, those earned moments, those important moments of just being quiet and listening to yourself and connecting with what you care about, what you're really interested in. And, and if you do it right, and if all those skills you've honed over time over time come to bear, it will connect with people. So what was your Tina Turner inner God moment like? Well, what, I've been having little, I've been having Tina Turner mo like little moments, right? And I'll, 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 I know I'll have a big one, but in writing this book, 
the topics, it was important to me that they were topics, not that I, I didn't want to game the system. I didn't want to say, oh this, oh, this will appeal to this demographic. This will appeal over there. We've got to balance it this way. Mix is important, definitely. And I've learned that on CBS Sunday Morning, which is essentially a news variety show, that you want to give people carbs, sugar, a rush, but you also want to give them protein. And each piece you want to balance that, right? So that it's kind of fun, but also surprisingly substantive, and vice versa. Um, but that all of them I needed to have a connection to. And so I cared about Billy Carter for some reason. I listened to myself. Maybe it's because I'm a sibling and, and something about that struck me as very poignant, his relationship with his older brother. Um, but, you know, in, 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 so, so that was important for me in, in this project on the podcast and in the book to just make sure that these are topics I care about. I think it, I, it's, it sounds so trite, but it's so important not to try to game the system. So let's talk about the book. I mean, what would you say is the difference between an obituary and a mobituary? Well, a mobituary is an appreciation for someone that I think didn't get the send-off they deserved the first time around um, and, it, and, and or isn't remembered in the way that he or she or it should be remembered. And there are objects or things that never got obituaries. Um, so it could be somebody that was very famous and fell off the map like Chang and Ang, the original Siamese twins who were some of the first entertainers in America were incredibly famous and no longer, unless you had the, the, there was a Guinness Book of World Records. I think everybody remembers one photo from them, a famous photo. It could be somebody who still is sort of a household name like Sammy Davis Jr. or Marlena Dietrich, um, it, um, but I think is not remembered in the way that they should be remembered. Or it could be somebody um, and the random, randomness of, of life is so heightened when you're talking about these figures, like Farrah Fawcett, who had the misfortune of not only dying too early, but dying on the same day as Michael Jackson, right? Died the same day as there are a lot of wild coincidences like that. Um, or it could be somebody, I have a series of forgotten forerunners, people um, like Elizabeth Jennings, who 101 years, almost exactly a century before Rosa Parks, um, was kicked off of a streetcar in New York City in Lower Manhattan, um, and, and an African-American woman and ended up suing in civil court and winning and leading to the integration of New York's transportation system um, shortly after the Civil War. That's when that happened. Um, so it's a, it's a variety. It's a variety of... I was going to ask you, I mean, like, I would love if you can sort of, like, walk us through one of your favorite mobituaries and, like, how you came to that idea and what you learned from it. Sure. Um... Let me talk about Sammy Davis Jr. I love Sammy Davis Jr. because I think he, along with Judy Garland, is probably the greatest entertainer of the 20th century. But what I love about Sammy Davis Jr. Um, is he was basically a quintuple threat. He was a singer, an actor, a dancer, an impressionist, and had a really a, a greatly touted gun spinning routine um, that was really honed and practiced over time. He never went to school for a day in his life, though he never seemed to regret that because he loved performing so much. But what I found so exhilarating about him, other than the fact that in each of these disciplines, he's pretty much better than anyone else. It's not just that he can do all these things, but there's this light that emanates from him, is that there was nothing snarky about him. He never made fun of the material. So he could take material like doing a cover of a cheesy sitcom theme like Maude or Chico and the Man, and you kind of roll your eyes back and go, this is going to be really cheese ball. 
and it always ends up being good because it's a full, open-hearted commitment to the material. And I find that bold and brave and beautiful and a kind of entertainment that I, that I don't think quite exists in the same way anymore. And I think there's a good reason that it's been so hard to do a biopic of him because who can you find that can do all that? But I think that there's in an age of extreme irony, there's a distancing that's, that a lot of people tend to do that's protective. Um, so I, I love that story because I find it very inspiring. I also found him to be a very bold person who's not given the credit um, that he deserves. Harry Belafonte once said, you know, he was at Selma. He was at the March on Washington. Why don't people know that? Um, I liked somebody like talking, writing about somebody like Herbert Hoover who is associated with the, the president, who is associated with the Great Depression, the second worst thing to happen in the history of this country after the Civil War. Um, Herbert Hoover before then was known as the great humanitarian. About 10 million Northern Europeans were saved from starvation when Herbert Hoover, as a private citizen, marshaled the resources um, to help them. He standardized much of American life. He was a great innovator, but eight months into his presidency, 90 years ago, the stock market crashed, and everything that happened before was basically preseason ball. It didn't count. And for a person, <laughs> a little type A like I am, you, it's such a, a heartbreaking story because you think he did all the right things. He did everything he was supposed to, and then this happened. I mean, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, like, working on the book and the podcast, how has that made you think about legacies and what people remember or don't remember? Well, um, here's the sad but also kind of weirdly liberating truth is that we're all going to be forgotten really quickly. And so I learned that oh, when you spend time, when you spend time, get something named after you, like a building, that uh, when you spend time um, writing and, and thinking about a lot of people of the past, even great people, it's remarkable. And in the introduction to the book, I, a colleague of mine from CBS interviewed in 2002, the writer, director, great wit, Nora Ephron. And Nora Ephron had written a musical about Lillian Hellman and Mary McCarthy, two titanic intellectuals who had had a big feud, and they were household names, and this is now 2002. And the reporter, Rita, asked Nora, how do you want to be remembered? And Nora looked at her and said, remembered? These two women I'm writing about have been dead for only 10 or 12 years, and no one knows their names. And I thought that was kind of an interesting exchange. Cut to last year, I was doing a podcast episode about Audrey Hepburn, and I wanted to use a clip of a Nora Ephron interview I had done where Nora had a great story about Audrey Hepburn. And none of the people working with me under the age of 35, and these are smart people, really smart, great people, none of them knew who Nora Ephron was and she'd been dead for five years. So, <laughs> so, but on the bright side. She didn't have a building named after her, that's right, well, right, that's the problem. She needed a statue. Um, the, on the bright side, it sort of makes you think, well, live now and connect with what you're interested in and what makes you happy. Um, stop curating your own museum. <laughs> so, and you did a really interesting piece on um, on CBS Sunday Morning about obituaries, and you went to ObitCon, right. which is like a convention for obituary writers, which I had no idea that was a thing. And I know that you know part of the reason why you got into obituaries is that you yourself are fascinated by obituaries. So for you, first of all, I mean, how was ObitCon? <laughs> and 
what do you think is like the craft of a good obituary? As dark as that may sound. <laughs> so ObitCon is much better than Comic-Con. ObitCon is a blast. <laughs> the people there are really interesting. And I met two old-timer Obit writers, not surprisingly from the South, who were so funny and so great. And they were giving me sort of the lexicon of code words that are used a lot of the time in obits and in paid death notices, which, by the way, should never be confused. Obit writers get really offended when you call, when you say paid obits. Obituary writing is an art. Paid obits, paid death notices are what you basically pay to, you know, and you can write anything about your family members, you know, um, it, it, if, you, if you pay enough. Um, and they, they gave me some code words. They said, whenever it says, like, he was a great raconteur, that means, he was really, really boring. He couldn't stop talking. He told really long stories. Or as, as one, and, and then one of, the, one of the writers told me, if they said, oh, he was, he was raucous, that means he was an out-of-control drunk. Um, but I think the thing that, I, that, that, that really draws me to obituaries are little details. Um, in the New York Times obit for Alfred Hitchcock, there was a detail, uh, um, I might have the age wrong, but when he was five or six years old, growing up in a little English village, the father had the local jailer take young Alfred Hitchcock and throw him into a jail cell and slam the door behind him and say, that's what happens to bad little boys. And it was kind of like an English early 20th century version of the scared straight program, I guess. <laughs> and so, but that, that clanging noise door slamming behind him, stayed with him, and a lot of his work ended up being about mistaken identity and about you know crime and punishment. So I love little details like that. Um, but I think that a, that a good obit should feel like the movie trailer for an Oscar-winning biopic. It should have sweep, you know, the highs, the lows, and it should, it should take your breath away. And it really is about the life of someone, not the death. I think one thing I love about your career and you as a person is that it seems like you're fueled by this innate curiosity about everything, which I think more people should have. So like how do you how should we cultivate that sense of curiosity in our in our everyday lives really? I think it starts with being interested in what you're interested in. And let me I, I know I've said this before, but let me give you another example. I was profiling Maureen Dowd, the New York Times writer. And she told me this really interesting story off camera, and it wasn't off the record, so I, I, I'm sure she wouldn't mind my sharing it. And she said, when I was growing up, there were two things I was really interested in, Shakespeare and vampires. And she said, I never wanted to share with, she went to an all-girls school growing up. She said, I was embarrassed about the vampire thing, like in the 60s or whatever. It wasn't it was. cool back then. It wasn't exactly. Twilight back then. Exactly, exactly. It wasn't cool, so she was embarrassed about it. So she pursued the Shakespeare thing, and her writing, when she writes about politics, it's all character-driven, and she sees oftentimes politics as Shakespearean drama. So it served her really well, but she said to me, but, you know, if I if I'd indulged my curiosity of vampires, look what ended up happening. It ended up becoming, a, as you say, like with Twilight, a huge thing, and there's a lesson in that, I think. So I think if you sort of feed that curiosity, I mean, I was, I was at a crossroads in my own career in, the mid, in my mid-20s, and I said to myself, I'm kind of interested in who would work at the Grover Cleveland birthplace in Caldwell, New Jersey. I'm serious. It was crazy. I don't know why. And so I went, and I went to, Port, to um, Port Authority and took a bus out there 
and I went and I visited it. And I met a woman there named Sharon Farrell, who was the docent, the tour guide there. And part of the deal of working, as she did, at the Grover Cleveland um, birthplace is she could live on the third floor. So she raised her family in a historic site. And I thought, my God, that's the sitcom I want to star in. But like about working and living in the Grover Cleveland birthplace. But that then led me to visiting other historic sites. And it kept going. And I quite literally bought a one-way ticket to Indianapolis and rented a car from there and drove around because a lot of the obscure presidents lived in Ohio and in Indiana, uh, like Rutherford B. Hayes um, and James Garfield and, and Warren Harding. Um, and that ended up giving me lots of kind of quirky story ideas, and that's how I got on television, and I got on The Daily Show, because I took two of those stories, and I'd never been on camera before. So I think there's a lesson in that, because I didn't, I, I indulged that. So whatever it is, pull at that thread, and I think it will end up, don't, you know, tamp it down, exactly, right. because you think it's weird or something. Right. And, you know, I think, uh, to me, one, one consistent theme throughout your career has just been, it's been humor. I mean, that's part of your title. It's so, so always, always so often Moraka humorist. And I'm wondering, you know, as you've tackled it in so many different forms and as you've written and performed humor, in your opinion, like, how has, how has humor evolved in a way, or has it at all? Well, I think one thing I learned on The Daily Show, I think, you know, from Jon Stewart was that, we would go from jokes and hard-edged jokes, so they weren't, and sometimes silly jokes, to a very serious interview that he was conducting. And, you know, I grew up in an hour-long drama, half-hour comedy world, right? There were hour-long dramas and half-hour comedies. Now with streaming, it's all mixed up. There are all these dramedies and tragic comedies, whatever. So, but life is not divided into hour-long dramas and half-hour comedies. When I was doing my cooking show in the very first episode with this amazing grandmother who happened, named Ruth Teig um, up in Westchester, and she had hidden a barn in Dubienka, Poland for a year during the World War II to hide from the Nazis. When she got out as a six-year-old girl, her legs were atrophied, and she, you know, it took a, a while for her to walk again. But one moment we were making jokes about keeping kosher and I you know and and if there was a clip in a in an eclipse in the middle of the day on the sabbath what that would that mean and blah 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 and we were just having fun about dividing the meat from the dairy and in the next moment I was coming to tears hearing about what she'd been through and then we were laughing again because that's how life is and so I think it's the, the one big change I've seen is that there's, you, you don't have to box yourself in like that. Believe me, I meet a lot of comics, comedians, some with big names who say that they want to actually be doing journalism, and, and I certainly meet journalists who feel the opposite. So um, I'm not sure what it is about the world that's precipitated this, but um, that wall has been breached, and I think it's a good thing. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. And I definitely want to leave some time for questions.
questions. If anybody has, we have a mic runner. Oh, I think someone right, right in the front. Thank you so much. Um, thank you for all of the great stories over the years. Really appreciate thank that. You. Um, if you had to pick somebody to write your obituary and they would share one of your many details of your life, who would, who would write it and what would they write about? Um, I think that um, I, I've become friends with Marguerite Fox, who is a great um, is retired from the New York Times now, is going to continue writing other places, uh, is a great obit writer. So I'm hoping that, becoming friends with her, I can, I can get her maybe to do an obit for me. Sorry, this is so morbid. <laughs> an advance obit, like an advance by like 50 years. Okay, and um, um, what detail? I mean, I, I'd like, I, you know, I thought about the, uh, um, it's kind of, and I've been asked this, especially while, while talking about this book and podcast, I'd like the first line to be Moraka, comma, who made people interested in things they didn't expect to be interested in, comma, died today. He was 135. <laughs> but um, but I, as far as the detail, I don't know what, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm really, uh, I'm proud actually of how I kind of committed to doing this small cooking show that wasn't a cooking show and how it would, it, it was a very personal thing, so I kind of would, I would like that to be included, that that was um, an, an important turning point for me. Yeah, of course. And engraved plate of ravioli on your tombstone. Yes, I yes, I love that idea of, of engraved ravioli. It's yours. Or, yeah. Hi, um, thanks for the stories. I could be here all day. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the experience of being on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me? Yeah, the experience of being on Wait, Wait, she's asked me about the experience of being on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, NPR's hit news quiz, which is now in our 22nd year, I think. I've been on it for about 18 of those years. It's a, it's, here's why it's a great experience. Um, it, everybody comes from a different place. Paula Poundstone is a fantastic stand-up comic. Roy Blunt Jr. is a Southern uh, writer, a, w a wonderful writer. Um, th there are people from all, uh, all different walks. Roxanne Roberts is a columnist for the Washington Post. And I think because it, we're all from different places, it makes it fun and less sort of competitive. It's not like, a, I think, a, if, if everybody was a stand-up comic, it, I'm not sure how well that would work. Um, but I will say that creatively, it was very important for me to learn how to be okay with sounding like myself. Um, almost everyone, I think, hates the sound of their voice when they hear it the first time. It's jarring. It's like, Ugh. and um, it was an important development for me because when I started on the show, I was doing a very kind of quotations around everything, like sort of playing a character, and sometimes it would work and I'd get laughs, but I didn't want to sound like myself. And I think everybody has you know, different histories, so I don't want to assume that, that I had a particular burden, but I think as a gay man, sounding like myself was sort of fraught. Like, oh, how am I sounding? Um, and once I let go of that, um, I started getting more laughs, and people felt, and people, I, people seemed to like what I did on the show more. So that was a that was important for me that sh you know in that respect the show. Hi, um, I describe myself as having a quirky personality, and I can kind of see myself through in your career. You're having that same kind of personality. Were you ever 
discouraged in a way to downplay that personality all along the your career path? Because I feel like I've been also told I need to suppress it at times. It's overwhelming that it's too much. And if you can talk about if you had a similar experience. Well, that's an interesting thing. You know, um, <clears throat> I once took a voice. I had a vocal coach, and this woman was well known, and she was very good. Um, and she would train. It wasn't. She wasn't technically teaching people how to sing. She'd help you with your audition song. So I had to do eight bars of an up tempo and a ballad. I think if I only had a brain was my up tempo. I was pretty good with that. All right, and then Can I we hear it. <laughs> I could while away the hours conferring with the flowers, consulting with the rain. Da -da 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 -da. And my head, I'd be scratching while my thoughts were busy hatching. If I only had a brain, Ooh. I'd unravel every riddle for any individual in trouble or in pain. And the thoughts I'd be thinking I could be another Lincoln if I only had a brain. Oh, I. I could tell you why the ocean meets the shore. I could think of things I never thunk before. And then I'd sit and think some more. Um, I would not be just enough in my head all full of stuff and my heart all full of pain. And perhaps I deserve you and be even worthy of you if I only had a brain. That was 32 bars. Ooh. Okay. So, and. That um, vibrato, though. Uh, My yeah, God. It's, it's all about the vibrato. We can auto-tune the rest. <laughs> you can't auto-tune the vibrato. If you don't have that, go home. <laughs> and so... Victoria, fix that in post in the podcast. Yeah, Thank you. So, <laughs> give it a lead. Yeah. Um, uh, but I remember I was doing a... I was preparing a song um, as Bud Frump in... Um, how to succeed in business without really trying, like the nerdy kind of like scheming second comic male lead. And I was really laying it on thick. And she looked up at me in the middle. She stopped playing and she went, be easy to take. And I was horrified. And I said, what? I said, she said, people will get it. Be easy to take. And what she meant, and it's going to sound like the opposite of what you're asking me, is I think that I sort of felt like I needed to like do a character, maybe to compensate for something else. And rather than kind of letting go with that and trusting that the audience would sort of pick up on what's hopefully unique about me um, and not overdo it. So I know that sounds a little counterintuitive, but... I think in a weird way the two things are connected. And um, I definitely, you, you should not censor yourself. I mean, unless, you know, there's some real issues, but like, but, um, but I also think it's equally important not to push and to trust that people will, people will get it and be engaged and hopefully be charmed, so, yeah. And I know okay. there was a question right there. Yeah. Oh, back there actually, I think he's, oh, sorry. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, Mo, first of all, my 11-year-old son loves Wait Wait, and you are one of his favorites, so his mind is blown that I'm talking to you right now. Oh, cool. Thank you. But uh, my question for you is, uh, back to Mobituary, just thinking about, um, do you have any suggestions for us in terms of thinking about writing our own uh, Mobituary as it is, you know, as a way to think about unlocking our creativity, our creative confidence, and what that, without curating it, as you kind of warned not to, but how you might use that as an exercise to kind of find your creativity? Um, that's, a, you know, it's funny. I, in all seriousness, I have not, I've never even as an exercise written my own, hopefully well in the future, obituary. But I think it probably would be a good exercise. 
um, just in the way that I went out to grandparents to sort of seek answers to what are the values that shaped their lives um, and what, what brought them fulfillment, I think that that probably would help um, as, as an exercise. Um, I think that's probably the best thing I can think of, um, yeah, um, is to try to project how, how it might read. Um, I mean, that first line, it's all in that first line. The first paragraph <laughs> is that Indeed, one right. with that long clause, that crazy <laughs> long clause, which, by the way, I'm fascinated by. Because the longer certain public figures live, you wonder if certain things will go down. Well, like Jimmy Carter, his post-presidency has been so distinguished that who knows, maybe if he lives long enough, the Nobel will go in front of the one term in office. But, uh, um, but that's, the, yeah, I, I would imagine that trying to, to write it out, what you want to be remembered for, at least in the short term, would be a good idea, yeah. I think we have time for one more right in the front over here. Hi, thank you. I am a big fan of CBS Sunday Morning, so thank you, thank you for your stories. I've always been curious, what is the story behind your name? So the story behind my name. So when um, I was born in the late 60s, my father was the ambassador to Mozambique. And I'm making that up completely. I just wanted to see how polite you were. I was like, is your name Maurice? <laughs> It's usually, I love that she was like, oh, that's so interesting. Your father was nuts. So, and so, yeah, then usually I say, well, my mother was a hippie. She was hitchhiking across the Mojave Desert when I was born. And it goes on, or as a fast crawler, mobile. No, my real name is Maurice. And uh, when I was in seventh grade um, and I was going to junior high, which, of course, is I mean, a hellscape for most people, but it, 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 I loved elementary school. And then it's like, it's, it's sort of like the end of Eden, right? When you go from there into junior high and uh, the phys ed teacher, she was calling roll. And she said, okay, when I come to your name, if you have a nickname, tell me and I'll write it in the margin. And then she went to, you know, Maurice Rocca. And I went here and then Jeff Hebner just went, he's not Maurice, he's Mo. And that was it. And then everyone started calling me Mo, which I liked. And I think that I had like toyed with a nickname. With I don't think he pulled that out of nowhere. But as soon as Jeff Hebner said that, I think Jeff Hebner is like a big tech guy now in Silicon Valley. I feel like he's probably been in Fast Company. So Jeff, if you're watching, thanks. And I'd love to like because I know on CBS Sunday Morning. I mean, you've mentioned before that working, being a correspondent for the show is like going back to college and only taking electives, which I oh. love. And so from that, I mean, like, what would, what would be your syllabus of life for us from all the things that you learned? Well, um, I think that, you know, it's funny. When I think about, there was an interview. He's a really great interviewer. He was the guy that was at New York Magazine that's now at the New York Times, David, I forget his last name. Anyway, he interviewed Bernadette Peters. And Bernadette Peters, who I think is so fantastic, he was talking about her career. And he said to her, you know, you were never really part of the counterculture, even though you were working in the 60s and all that. And she said, no, no, that's that, I, I never did really political things or things cooked, hooked to current events. And he said, oh, so you prefer more escapist fare. And then she said, and it was Prince, so I, I don't know how she sounded, but she said, not escapist. She said, you have to understand there's beauty in the world. So it's not a choice between doing things hooked 
to current events, what's happening right now in Washington, or being escapist. There's this whole other thing that's part of living that's not just a break from what's really happening. It is actually what is happening, right? Books and plays um, and dance and art and food. I'm doing a piece now on snails. I went to one of only two snail farms that exist in America um, on the North Fork of Long Island. It was really interesting, but I mean, we need this stuff and I'm glad that we as human beings need these stories um, and they're not just a break. They're part of what nourishes us. And snails are very rich in protein, by the way. <laughs> well, I think this conversation has nourished us enough. Thank you so much, Mo. Thank I really you. appreciate your time. Thank you. This Thank is you. great, Casey. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.